Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, where Satchmo Summerfest kicks off in the French Quarter on Friday and runs through Sunday, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, where North Little Rock will host the Wingstock Wing Festival at the Verizon Arena on Saturday from 7 a.m., to 10 a.m. Tonight, we're looking at an insurance fraud case in Richmond Hill, a subdivision in southeast Indianapolis. Two neighbors were killed, 12 were injured, and the explosion of a house caused millions of dollars in property damage. We'll talk about the conspirators, the plot, and the evidence that led to two of the largest prosecutions in the state of Indiana. As always, we're a live show, and calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. Good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. It's nice to be back here on Clear and Convincing this week. Uh, Definitely had an interesting uh, week, as I told you uh, on the thing, you know. uh, Some of this stuff kind of sat at home, but... You know, one thing I didn't get to mention before we came on the air with that whole situation is as soon as I saw that, I started reading it, and I've noticed our show's kind of rubbed off, off on me a little bit. I started kind of picking up on some of the jargon in the news story. I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. Oh, that's good. Good for you. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. So, um, We have new developments in the Reed case. I, I have a suspicion that this case is going to be evolving between now and November. Um, The execution date has been set for Rodney Reed. He will be executed by the state of Texas on November 20th, 2019, barring a stay from a court uh, either in the state of Texas or federal court. Also, in a kind of parallel uh, thing, a parallel action, the state is challenging Rodney Reed's opposition to the execution date being set. Remember, Rodney Reed's attorneys filed a motion to dismiss and a motion for sanctions, and they alleged that the state was seeking an execution date 
because Rodney Reed's family went to the U.S. Supreme Court and protested on the courthouse steps. Mm-hmm. Um, which, where they get that, I mean, where they get that idea, I don't know. Um, it smells like BS to me. Um, so then they had the protest last week at, at the DA's office. Um, but um, right now, nothing has been filed on behalf of Reed seeking DNA testing, uh, challenging his conviction or sentence or anything uh, in the courts. Everything has remained in the court of public opinion. Well, Lisa, and I don't know uh, possibly uh, what your thoughts are about doing, you know, a show the day of uh, the day should we get that far. But one thing I want to mention is, you know, uh, I want to ask you, with Reed having all this time between his conviction and his actual sentence, are we going to see less avenues for him to potentially get a stay of execution, or is he still going to be able to go through the state level, then head all the way up to the Supreme Court on the day of his execution? Well, I think that he has exhausted every bit of new evidence that he's come up with. There are a couple of things that were raised in 2016 that he did not pursue. However, the fact that he raised them in 2016 and did not develop them is going to prohibit him from now trying in 2019, three years later, to get back into court and try to develop them. Uh, one of them was the claim that a, a Giddings police officer by the name of Gary Joe Bryant was investigating Jimmy Finnell, believed Jimmy Finnell uh, had killed Stacy, and basically the what they came up with was his wife contacted them and said, oh, yes, my husband told me he was investigating Jimmy Finnell. He had all kinds of evidence. It was in a briefcase. When he was murdered, and, of course, they're implying that Jimmy Finnell murdered him, um, I went to pick up that briefcase, and it was empty. Uh-huh. And But he told me that, you know, he thought Jimmy had killed Stacy. That's all well and good. He wasn't an official investigator. He was doing this on his own apparently and the other thing the problem is is that the timeline falls within the time when Jimmy was under suspicion by the Texas Rangers the Bastrop Police the Bastrop Sheriff's Office and was being investigated and accused by them so the fact that this officer thought Jimmy killed Stacy at that time is not really unusual. Okay. And this officer, Gary Joe Bryant was killed prior to Reed's arrest in April of 97. So are we about to just pretty much see the switch to, Hey, I'm going to challenge the protocol and all that stuff that we normally see. Are we about to see that? I think, I think that is really the only avenue he's got. Mm-hmm. What um, he's, he's exhausted the new evidence. He's exhausted the relationship claims. You know, he's, he's 
he can't keep coming up with these new witnesses that know there was a relationship. But until something is filed, we really won't know. How strong of a case do you believe he can make? Because I've seen some where they just dismiss it automatically. And then I've seen some people be able to, you know, get a stay based upon the protocol of the legal objection. Well, I think that the Supreme Court's decisions in Glossop uh, versus Oklahoma, Gross versus Oklahoma, on uh-huh. midazolam, I think those have pretty much put an end to uh, drawn-out proceedings regarding injection procedures. Okay. Okay. Um, so if they filed anything, it would basically probably be handled in a summary manner. Do you believe um, that there's a that they turn around and say he's not going to be competent to stand trial, or excuse me, competent to be executed, or the other um, thing is not physically fit enough? Well, those are two that they could try. But given the history of the case and the fact that they've never raised issues related to Reed's intelligence or competence, mental competence, I don't think that they would succeed. Uh, And not physically fit, I think that, you know, with the exception of Bucklew, who had a rare genetic or rare disorder that caused tumors to form, in his head and neck. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't. I don't know that they'll be successful. That yeah, you know, that's like the guy that said I was. He was too fat to be executed. Yeah. I think, and it's weird. He shares a name with another death penalty case, but I can't remember what case it was because when I was researching that death penalty case, I came up with this guy. Mm-hmm. But I didn't save it So um, I do have I did put on the schedule uh, Our show Will be on the 19th Of November Okay So I was going to do the 19th I don't think that we can really do A An as it happens Execution show and I don't really necessarily want to do that because I don't want to seem like I am gloating or enjoying the prospect right. um, mm-hmm. of this. So I would rather on the 19th he'll either have a stay or he won't and we'll talk about the developments in the case since the last time we covered it and maybe go into a little bit more about why the U.S. Supreme Court didn't review the DNA testing request, why the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals denied the request or the appeal of the DNA testing denial, um, why the subsequent writs were all denied or dismissed, Uh and go into the, you know, the, the why you know explanations because what we see 
in the court of public opinion in the media articles is we see beer cans that have not been an issue for 10 years being trotted out and saying there was DNA from a police officer on those beer cans. We see the claims of the relationship being trotted out and all these witnesses that knew of a relationship. And, you know, but most of them have been reviewed by court. The last three that Reed came up with, he did not produce at his hearing in Bastrop in 2017. Right. And the only reason I can think of that he wouldn't produce them at that hearing and put them on the stand and let him testify is because he doesn't want him cross-examined. Mm-hmm. So um, when they, when Bryce Benjet goes into the state not refuting things and not presenting evidence of things, well, where were your relationship witnesses in October 2017? Very true. Because the medical evidence wasn't part of that writ. And yet you trotted out Michael Bodden. You know. So. Uh, and you know, like why the trial court dismissed Michael Bodden's testimony. And didn't find it to be significant enough to grant a new trial. Mm-hmm. So. Um, but I, I would prefer to do that the day before. Okay. Or even on the Monday, if your bar show is on that Tuesday, it's November 19th. Oh, by the way, speaking of the bar show, and this will be kind of an update for the fans there at home, the bar show will be the second Tuesday of every month. So we have a little bit of a schedule now. So if it's the second Tuesday of the month. All right. I will... Update the schedule accordingly tomorrow. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about, Lisa, and it's a case we, you know, just barely talked about back in January. But I don't know if you remember, but we had the uh, – we talked about the New Orleans Saints suing the league yes. or somebody suing the league. Uh, yes. I thought that got thrown out. No, and I will have to research that. Another time. Um, it has been allowed to. Pers- I I heard a little bit about it last couple weeks. Uh, a judge, either in state court or federal court, probably federal court, uh, has decided that the the suit can proceed. Which surprises me. Yeah. Well, the I, and I'll have. That's why I want to. I want to. Would rather research it because I don't mm-hmm. want to. Um, I, I don't want to misstate anything about, you know, the challenge or or why the judge determined that it could proceed, depending mm-hmm. upon what the challenge was. Um, right. You know, I, it, if the defense was saying they don't have a remedy. Then the judge said, "Yes, they do." So, I but I'll research it and we can talk about it a little bit next week because next week we get started on three episodes about Edward Wayne Edwards. Woo, that rabbit hole! 
And every time I start reading that book, I curse your name, boy. <laughs> but we'll talk about that next week. Yes, ma'am. So, um, yeah, I'll I'll research that, and we can talk about it briefly next week. Okay, sounds good. All right, so you ready to start talking about the Richmond Hill, Indiana, uh, Indianapolis explosion case? Let's do it. I honestly, I'm going to be honest with you. I hadn't heard about this, and you know, uh, I listened. I was able to listen to a little bit of what you sent me. I wasn't able to watch the video that you had told me, the episode of the uh, mm-hmm. television show, and I, the name escapes me. But I wasn't able to American watch American Greed. But, yes, American Greed. But, I mean, just listening to your description, it sounds like a case of, hey, this person wanted to collect some insurance illegally, and it went completely botched. Well, it it doesn't – it's not – it's not botched. Mm-hmm. They succeeded in blowing up the house. The problem is, is that they also ended up succeeded in killing two neighbors, injuring twelve others, seven of them seriously, and causing millions of dollars of property damage. A lot of homes in that subdivision. You know, like multiple homes on the street where her house was had to be demolished. They were all structurally, the structural integrity of the homes was gone. So many of them were blown off the foundation. Wow. So it was not botched. It had unintended consequences, but not unforeseeable consequences. Yeah, if you would have thought that through, it probably would have been a little bit, made a little bit of and, sense that this shit happened. Yeah. Um, and, um, it you know, it's a little, it's like a middle-class subdivision. You know, little bigger, nicer houses, um, like four-bedroom, you know, 2,000-plus mm-hmm. square feet. Some probably as many as 3,000 square feet or up. Um, But mostly, you know, working people, teachers, uh, engineers, nurses, retired. There was a retired police officer in the neighborhood. um, And, uh, you know, those, those types of people. It wasn't like lawyers and doctors and, you know, legitimate 5,000 square foot mansions or anything like that. It was what Uh um, somebody called McMansions. In Arkansas, you saw a lot of farmland. Uh, My generation or or younger generation, your generation, would inherit a farm and not want a farm, and so they would parcel it up and sell it and make it a subdivision. Right, so and you, you would see, see these big okay. houses going up, McMansions. Right. So, um, but it also seemed to be a pretty tight knit 
neighborhood. Everybody knew everybody. <clears throat> you know, they socialized. They uh, looked out for one another, um, as we'll see from a little bit later on. Uh, the conspirators in the case were Montserrati Shirley. She was born in Puerto Rico and grew up there. She was not from a rich family, but she always envied the rich tourists that came to Puerto Rico and spent their money and wore their nice clothes. And so her dream was to be like them when she grew up. Uh, when she was in her late, early 20s, mid-20s, she was able to come to the United States to go to nursing school. And so she began living the American dream. Mm-hmm. Uh, she married and had a daughter. They lived in a small house in a small subdivision but it wasn't what she had dreamed of, and so she wanted more. And I think that was the problem. She wanted more. In 2003, uh, she and her husband began, began building her dream home in the Richmond Hill subdivision, which even at that time the husband felt was a little bit beyond their means. But to make her happy... He he acquiesced. She built her, you know, 2,800 square feet, four-bedroom house. Uh, no expense was spared, which put them financially behind an eight ball because by the time construction was finished, the mortgage was more than they could afford, which meant that they both had to take extra jobs. I believe she was working two jobs. And she was a nurse, uh-huh. and he was working three jobs. He was a a, a technician, uh, you know, like a manufacturing technician in an the industry thing, in Indiana, uh, Indiana. Pardon? That's the crazy <clears throat> things we do for love, right? <laughs> yeah, and so you know they were they were working two and three jobs just to try to keep their heads above water with the bills. Um, there was also some sort of affair that, that Shirley had with a doctor at the hospital where she worked. And in addition to the money problems, that probably led to the breakup of her marriage to John Shirley. In the divorce, he signed over title to the house, and she had to assume all the debt. She also got primary custody of their daughter. Uh, And he went on his way. Um, She also, in 2012, had to file for bankruptcy. And that was in flux uh, because she had missed some of the scheduled payments. And so the, the bankruptcy was supposed to be converted to a Chapter 7 which I think is where they gather all your assets and make deals with all your creditors and you don't get to keep your house or anything else. Um, But uh, that was kind of 
not at the forefront at the time all this happened. Uh, in November of 2011, she met a man by the name of Mark Leonard. He was born in Indianapolis. He was a child of divorce. He had an older half-brother by the name of Bob. Um, Mark was a good-looking man who wanted attention, and he also wanted more. And when he was in his 20s, he worked as a male exotic dancer. But, of course, you can only do that for so long, and then you got to find some other way to make your money. Right. Um, he was supposedly working construction. However, the impressions that I get from numerous sources is that he wasn't really working. He was spending his time whining and dining women and then conning them out of their money. I was going to say, he was trying to find a sugar mama. Yes, he was trying to find a sugar mama. And I believe that because of Montserrat Shirley, because of the way she dressed, because of where she lived, because of what she did for a living, he thought Monserati was the, the sugar mama to beat all sugar mamas. But it turns out Monserati Shirley, at the time he met her, was as piss poor as he was. Backfire. And so early, well, no, but this is the interesting thing. Monserati allowed Mark to continue going on uh, Lonely Heart websites like Plenty of Fish and finding older, overweight women who maybe weren't as cute as they were when they were in their 20s and conning them out of money. And she was fine with that as long as he didn't sleep with them. Wow. And some say she wanted to please him, but I call BS on that. She wanted that money. Um, Yeah, she did. And um, so that was uh, that was the, the thing. I mean, if Mark Leonard had put as much time and effort into working construction jobs, going out and getting construction jobs, mm-hmm. as he did scamming women, he would have he would have made buck you know bucks hand over fist. He also had a gambling problem though. So as fast as he scammed it or made it, he he lost it at the blackjack tables or at the casino. Uh-huh. Um. And then there's his half-brother, Bob. I don't really know much about Bob. He is uh, significantly older and did not – he lived in a trailer, so, you know, I don't think – I don't know what he was doing. It's kind of diaphanous as to what he did for a living. And, you know, sometimes I think about travelers. Mm-hmm. Those are the people that travel in the in the winter. They come to the south. They retar your driveway, re-roof your roof, and they're a lot. A lot of them do scams. Right. 
And I'm wondering if Mark and Bob were from a traveler family. But it's just a, it's just a suspicion. Um, and then another was Gary Thompson. He was a friend of Mark's, and he was a guy that um, Mark would use when he wanted to pull insurance scams, like mm-hmm. reporting a vehicle stolen and burning it up to get the insurance money, or sending him to a friend, Glenn Holtz to start a fire in Glenn's house to get insurance money. Right. And the thing is, the way the insurance scam works is you up your insurance, claim to have a lot of expensive furniture, electronics, things like that in your house, mm-hmm. uh, up your contents insurance because you're you're insured for the – value of the house, which is generally the mortgage Uh or the appraised value, and then you have contents insurance for clothing, electronics, books, personal items, furniture, jewelry, you know, video games, DVD players, whatever. Um, Uh And so where you make the money is the contents. Because prior to whatever event, you move those contents somewhere else so they're not damaged. Right. And then you get a check to replace them, and you just move them back in. That's how the that's how it generally will work. Uh, and of course, the other part of how it works is when the fire happens, it's not an accident. When right. You know the the windows break out. It's not a it's not an unforeseen weather event. It's you've done something to cause the damage to occur. So I uh, mean, this confuses me a little bit how they get away. Okay. With it because when the insurance guy comes to uh, comes to check everything out, won't he notice that there's no burn damage on the TVs and? You know, all that good stuff? Well, no, this is the thing. No. And and one of the things, and this is a common question, a common thought, a common rationalization that people will uh, come up with when they are leaning toward innocence in any type of mm-hmm. case. Why would they do that? How are they going to get away with it? People do not envision getting caught. People tend to believe they are smarter than anybody else. They're not going to see burn damage on the TV because you're not going to burn. You're not going to move the TV back until the house is fixed, and the insurance company has cut you a check. True. What people don't realize is when the adjuster is going through the rubble of your house after a fire in your kitchen, they're going to notice that there's no remnants of TV sets or computers or furniture. Mm-hmm. You know, these things will be damaged. They will be destroyed, but they won't be completely obliterated. A lot of times metal components in any television or electronics, those metal components actually don't 
disintegrate in high heat. Mm-hmm. And so you can tell where a desk was because you'll find piles of screws, even if the desk completely turns to ashes. And you'll find metal components from monitors, computer, laptop. You'll find the metal components. Sometimes you'll even find the circuit boards. Mm-hmm. You'll find bits and pieces. Like you might find part of a frame that has an HP on it from a computer monitor. Mm-hmm. But people don't envision, they don't envision getting caught and they, you know, they they inherently think that everyone is, you know, stupider than they are. So, um that's you know that's the that's the way the scam will work, and a lot of times they don't work, and they do get caught because when the adjuster is going through the rubble and he's not seeing what he should see as far as t v s computers furniture you know things like that goes, or when he asks for um receipts, say I just bought a new t v set two weeks ago when he asked you for the receipt and you weren't home and you don't have it, but, you know, only one room in your house was damaged. <laughs> oh, it was in the kitchen. <laughs> you know. Um, and we'll get to that. We'll get to that a little bit later. Um, I just kind of wanted to, to start to, to go there and just kind of briefly touch on how it kind of works for people who perhaps have never, you know, are not that devious minded and wouldn't have thought of doing it. Um, the motive of course for Monserati and Mark was money because Monserati was, uh, carrying a lot of debt, not including her house. She was spending well beyond her means. Um, she didn't have any money. Mark Leonard didn't really have any money except what he could scam. And so they thought $300,000 will be a windfall. And Mm -hmm. getting the insurance on the contents would be a windfall. So one of the things he had uh, Monserati do was up her insurance on her contents. And see, one of the things that she did was she claimed to have a Picasso painting in the house, which I thought was hilarious. It's kind of like you don't remember that show Married with Children. Yeah, vaguely. That was one of the one of the episodes. Al's car was like a Dodge Dart or something like a 70s dart and it was stolen and they were telling the insurance company there were all these expensive things in the trunk of the Dodge Dart. Oh, Lord. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so she upped the contents from like 160000 to 300000 Right. So the plan was 
uh, to cause a gas fire mm-hmm. in the house, burn up everything in the house, and get the insurance money. Uh, the mortgages would be paid off, and then they would have three hundred thousand dollars. Mark Leonard, of course, another problem with Mark Leonard is he began seeing this as his house because shortly after they met, he moved in with her, and then this became no. his house. And so he was going to get a hundred thousand. She was still going to have two hundred thousand. Um, they agreed to pay Bob Leonard some money. They agreed to pay Gary Thompson some money. Um, so, but they, you know, they were going to be living high on the hog after, after this happened. Attempt number one was supposed to happen on October 27, 2012. Um, they boarded Montserrat's cat Snowball at a, a, at a groomer. They took Montserrat's daughter over to Glenn Holtz's house. And sent her there for the weekend, and they went to the Hollywood Casino in Lawrenceburg, Indiana. Um, They were trying to cause an explosion with gas, and one of the statements that Mark made at some point was, it has to be big because there was a fire station less than three miles away. And so it had to be something big. Otherwise, the fire station, the firefighters will get here right away and put it out, and the damage won't be as bad. Um, But also they're showing that whatever it is going to be, they're not going to be there. Partially to set an an alibi up, but partially because they don't want to be hurt. So right. the October 27th, they were they were trying to release gas in the house, and Glenn uh, Gary Thompson was supposed to come to the house and light it up. For some reason, he chickened out. He says he was pulled over by police that night, but he did not show up on October 27th, 2012, and so the first attempt was a no-go. Uh-huh. They came back from the casino. Mark was pissed, and that's when he involved his brother Bob. Attempt number two was supposed to be on November 3rd, which is the following Saturday. And again, they were trying to release gas in the house. They were trying to start a fire with the natural gas as the accelerant. And for some whatever reason not really clear, that didn't work. Um, right. Montserrat and her daughter come back on Sunday the 4th and uh, Mark sends them back off to a hotel saying that the furnace isn't working and the house is cold. And on the 4th, Mark and his brother Bob go by, instead of the electronic thermometer in the you know digital control unit for the heating and air, 
um, Mark goes and buys a $16 Mercury switch uh-huh. and installs that. Uh, but that apparently doesn't do the job, and so they scrap the plan. Uh-huh. They, most people, most normal people, when you've had these three attempts and not one of them has worked, you would say, okay, maybe it's just not meant to be. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to find some something else, some other way, or just get myself a good job. But not Bob and Mark Leonard. They upped the ante. Uh, on November 9th, Bob and his brother Mark met with a friend of Bob's who was a former gas company employee who basically gave them the how-tos and what-fors of causing a gas explosion. Right. Um, They took a step-down valve from the gas meter outside the house and removed a valve on the fireplace. The step-down valve regulates the pressure of the gas coming into the house. The pressure of the gas coming in is about 2 PSI. With the step-down valve, it lowers the PSI to one-half or one-quarter. And that's what most gas appliances work with. Furnaces and water heaters have internal mechanisms that also regulate the, the pressure of the gas coming into those units for safety the gas fireplace they removed the valve that would have controlled the flow of gas into the house so they Uh removed the valve left the line open and now gas is flowing in not only constantly but at a higher rate of flow than it should be And, you know, I thought as I read about this, I thought, my God, on the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, they all could have died of carbon monoxide poisoning. Right. Absolutely. Because this was something that they did. They did all these things, some of these things that they did in attempts number two and three. Um. And so, one of the other things they did, they removed their belongings. They removed the TVs. They removed the furniture. They they sent the furniture out for cleaning because it had a gas smell from the prior two attempts, which they told police were the unknown problems with the furnace. Um, right. And then they, again, on the third and fourth, Snowball boarded as a groomer. Not groomed. Persian cat, but not groomed, but boarded at a groomer. They took Snowball to the groomer, different groomer, sent daughter to Holtz's to to stay for the weekend, and then they went to the casino and didn't do anything that much on Friday night the 9th. On the 10th, uh, Mark 
played blackjack for nine minutes, lost $100 and stopped in the early afternoon. Uh, Monserrati played slots for three minutes and then stopped. And they spent the entire day of the 10th more or less sitting in the bar, waiting. At around 2 o'clock in the afternoon, Bob went to the house with another person. Uh, It may have been Gary Thompson. It may have been someone who was not ultimately charged. Uh, Bob went in, apparently put a cylinder with a flammable liquid into the microwave oven, programmed the microwave oven to go off at 11 o'clock or to start at 11 o'clock because it was a programmable microwave with a delay. Mm-hmm. Uh, made sure all the gas was flown into the house and then left. And we know, we have no doubt that it was Bob because his DNA was on the door, which was recovered after the blast. Um, and then he left and went on his way at 11 o'clock sometime between 11 and 11.10, the gas had built up in the house and was ignited by whatever was in the microwave. And Monserrati's house blew apart, causing severe damage to not only her house, but the house next door, which was occupied by John Dion Longsworth and his wife, Jennifer. And... Uh, the house on the other side of her, which was occupied by the Olvey family. The Longworth house was basically reduced from two stories to a pile of rubble. And in the basement of the home, beneath all that rubble, was Jennifer's body and her husband, Dion, who was still alive. Jennifer had been killed instantly from the blast. Um, Uh The concussion basically fractured, it can fracture your skull, it it fractures your eardrums, you know, you're you're gone. Yeah, the concussive blast. Yeah. Um, And, uh, but Dion was alive, he, neighbors heard him. Uh, One of the, one of the other things I have to, I have to talk about, I don't want to forget. These neighbors Hundreds of them went through this traumatic, horrible experience. They thought it was the end of the world. They thought a plane had crashed. They heard the explosion. I think one neighbor who had time in Afghanistan said it looked like a war zone, and yet they helped each other out. One neighbor who was leaving his house went to the doorway of another neighbor's house and called to make sure they weren't at home. They weren't. But you can find on YouTube, you can find security camera footage of, you know, a couple of these residences, not only what the blast did, but this neighbor stood in their door for five minutes, making sure they weren't home and they were okay and they didn't need his help. Um, neighbors went into the Olby's house and rescued him, his wife, and his youngest daughter, his older daughter was stunned but managed to get out of the house. Um, Neighbors tried to rescue Dion Longworth, and then firefighters, the blast was not only measured or recorded 
on a seismic graph almost 30 miles away. But the fire station in the neighborhood, they felt the blast. And they immediately got into their trucks and went toward the smoke. Mm-hmm. And uh, the firefighters got there. One firefighter was down as far into the hole as he could get. He was holding on to Dion Longworth, but the fire fed by the ruptured natural gas lines, not only to Montserrati Shirley's house, but to the Longworth's house. The fire moved too quickly and was too hot and they could not rescue Dion. And the the chief had to pull them out and back them off. And they had to leave Dion. He was in a he was in the basement. There was like a small a small hole where you could see him and you could reach in and you could touch him and he was talking, but they couldn't get him out of the hole. It wasn't big enough uh-huh. to bring him out. And he was probably under a lot of debris on top of that. Um, but they, I mean, they did everything that they could, but they didn't have time to do it because of the fire. Uh, and, you know, you look at the pictures I have on the webpage. I mean, the pictures uh-huh. of the fire are just horrible. Um, the Albies were injured. Several of the neighbors were injured. There were 12 uh, injuries, five minor, and seven others pretty serious. Um, I think Dwayne Olvey was one of the uh, – uh, Dwayne – was his name Dwayne Olvey? What was his name? Glenn Olvey. I'm sorry. Glenn Olvey was one of the one of the serious ones. Um, and – just about every house in the neighborhood had some level of structural damage. 33 houses in the neighborhood were beyond repair and had to be torn down. Okay. So um, this was huge explosion and uh, they, you know, they may, they may not have intended, but when you're going to blow your house up, and as I remember I said, Mark Leonard told somebody the firefighters or the fire stations, you know, less than a mile away, less than two miles away, it's got to be big. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's what they did. But I mean, it 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 affected every house in the neighborhood. Some minor with just broken windows and, you know, some uh, cosmetic damage. But others were literally knocked off the foundation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Longworth home collapsed. The Olney's house was, the Olvey's house was beyond uh, beyond repair. It had to be torn down. Um, so it, it was massive and how you can do something like that and not think somebody could be killed is beyond. 
So, um, so the investigation, once they got the fire out, uh, the investigation was a joint multi-agency, uh, Indiana, Indianapolis Metropolitan Police, the ATF, uh, the fire, state fire marshal, Indianapolis Fire Department, they all uh, worked together and par- they did parallel investigations because of the two deaths, but they also worked together on some aspects such as understanding what had happened and ruling out an accidental or negligence of a third party causes for the fire. Because the first thing they did was they checked all the gas lines to the uh, Shirley house and confirmed that those gas lines were not ruptured, not broken, not, you know, torn or any, anything of that nature and found no problems. The only problem they found was the remove the step that the step down valve had been removed and replaced right. with a black length of pipe. And then as they combed through the rubble, um, they found remote controls. They found mounts for TVs, but they found no television sets or remnants of television sets. They found no remnants of furniture. They found no remnants of computers or printers or modems. Um, they also found that the valve for the fireplace was gone. And then in the rubble in the kitchen, which they determined that the origin of the blast was the kitchen, they found the microwave oven. But instead of being crushed the way the refrigerator was, which happens in in an explosion, it's kind of like the pressure pulls it in like an aluminum can. Uh, The microwave actually had exploded from the inside. And they found a cylinder with damage also exploded out that suggested that a liquid had been uh, put in it and heated up and exploded. And the term believed, and I during the break I'll look up the uh, what that stands for. It's an acronym. Uh, and then they oh, found, man. you know, that there were no furniture, keepsakes, valuables, personal belongings, pictures, you know, nothing in the wreckage that you would expect to find from people who had just gone away for a weekend. Um, they also found that the, the boarding of Stubball the cat was suspicious because cats generally don't need to be boarded. And when they requested records, they found that going back to 2004, Shirley had never boarded Snowball but one time. Mm-hmm. And that was like for an extended vacation, not a weekend trip. Um, and then they had Leonard. Leonard had a history of fraud insurance fraud, scamming women out of money. So, you know, 
kind of gives you an idea that maybe he's not be not you know above blowing a house up trying to get the insurance proceeds. And then Shirley's financial trouble and the fact that she had increased the content coverage to three hundred thousand dollars. And there were yeah, irregularities so within I, what she used, what she said to uh, increase the content coverage. Right. So, um, so the, all those things were adding up. Um, that part of the investigation was probably between November 10th and December 20th. Um, right. However, on November 13th, they got a pretty big break that helped them start putting the pieces together. Okay. And you want to go go ahead and have the break, and then we'll we'll pick up with the uh, with the informant and the culmination of the investigation. Well, absolutely, we can. Ladies and gentlemen, cool. you're listening to Clear and Convincing. We'll be right back after this. champion at D-Mike as they battle for redemption this Saturday in Ola at 307 West Hill Street. Doors open at 530. Concessions will be available and this is a family-friendly show with kids under six getting in free. It's Redemption. Brought to you by the Arkansas Wrestling Organization.
robbing in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. I'd have said the right thing, but it must have used the wrong line. I've been on the right trip, but it must have used the wrong car. Hit us in a bad place, and I wonder what it's good for. Wow, All right, we're back. I don't what? know if you got my text message, but I know generally you try to get songs to the break that uh uh-huh. here that the taste happened. But wow, what a freaking song. Like that matches this case perfectly if I didn't think so. Thank you. Thank you. I <laughs> I seem to be pretty good at that. I was listening Sometimes to the I made <laughs> I know, it's crazy. But uh all right, so on November second, uh guy by the name of Mark Duckworth called his old friend Mark Leonard to see how he was doing because he hadn't talked to him in a while. And during that call, Mark Leonard said he was online shopping for Ferraris. And, of course, Duckworth knew Mark, so he thought that was kind of odd. And he said, well, how are you going to afford a Ferrari? And Mark Duckworth said, tsunami winds came through, blew the fire out of the fireplace, and the house exploded, which hadn't happened yet, which was supposed to happen on the 3rd. And so... Um, and he told Duckworth that he, they were living in an efficiency apartment. A few days later, of course, Mark called and said, hey, look, I was joking. I don't know why I said those things. I was just saying stuff. Don't pay no, pay, don't pay no mind to me. And Mark Duckworth was like, okay. Well, then when he sees on the news, because this was a huge news story, uh, uh-huh. that the house blew up, and he knew – Mark Leonard was living in Richmond Hill, he put two and two together and did the right thing and called the cops and reported the conversation with Mark Leonard. Uh, Several other neighbors also during the investigation, they were cooperative. Whatever small thing they saw, they reported. They reported seeing Mark Leonard's van, two men they didn't know getting out of the van, going in the house, coming out on Saturday. Uh, they reported, you know, that it was odd that all the blinds in the house were closed because that was unusual. And while that's all circumstantial, you can draw certain inferences from that. Yeah, eventually circumstantial adds up. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's not it's not each piece – in and of itself has to prove the ultimate fact. It's that you can take each piece and build it and it builds one on top of the other and then together you have the ultimate fact. That was one of the one of the issues that I've always had with with the West Memphis three case. Because it is, for the most part, aside from Miss Kelly's confessions, six of them last time I counted officially um, is all circumstantial. 
<clears throat> but it it's not one piece proves it's each piece goes together and proves and that's what we have with this so and then when Mark and, and Montserrat Shirley were interviewed they gave inconsistent statements you know Mark claimed that he was at the tables all day on Saturday well they had video that showed he, showed he wasn't and they had video of him in the bar of the hotel later on Saturday night looking at his watch like he was waiting for something you still there Michael? Oh, gosh darn, I'm sorry. I had you on mute. I, <laughs> I, was, I was sitting there talking to, talking to dead air. Well, oh, you had yourself muted? Yes, I had myself muted. I apologize. <laughs> I'm sitting there going, mm-hmm, yeah, and I'm talking to myself. <laughs> I thought I immediately was checking my phone to see if I had accidentally started my mute on my <laughs> phone. Don't you hate it when that happens? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. And just so that, so that we know, believe is boiling liquid expanding vapor explosion. Okay. Um, so, and that's where liquid in a container reaches critical mass and ruptures. So kind of like liquid oxygen. Right, correct. It's an explosion caused by the rupture of a vessel containing a pressurized liquid that has reached temperatures above its boiling point. I think we have a couple of uh, train car derailments that ended up with uh, uh, leaving happening. So that's that's what that means. And so... You know, they put something in the microwave in a metal container, and then the microwave came on, heated the whatever was in the metal container up, and that caused the explosion that ignited the gas vapor in the house that blew it to smithereens. So on December 20th or December 21st, 2012, Monserrati Shirley, Mark Leonard, and Bob Leonard were all arrested. Um, okay. the, there were a couple of unknown players that were being investigated um, who had who had been involved in other frauds with Mark Leonard, but those people were not yet arrested. Thompson and Holtz were not yet arrested uh, because there wasn't enough evidence to satisfy probable cause for them Uh, within a few months of being arrested in March of 2013 Mark Leonard gets the bright idea while he's in the Marion County Jail to try to find someone to kill Mark Duckworth Oh dear! because in Mark Leonard's mind if Mark Duckworth goes away the whole case against him go, goes away. <laughs> Which, eh, 
I, I'm not so sure because the, there was so much other evidence uh, that really marked Leonard's statement on November 2nd. Losing that would not have would not have negated all the other evidence. Right. Um, but he thought it would, and then he also came up with the plan that the undercover ATF agent who was posing as his hitman get Mark Duckworth to say, I didn't mean to frame Muncie and Mark for their own house in Richmond Hill. Mm-hmm. And then stage Mark Duckworth's suicide. Uh, and, you know, uh, unfortunately for Mark Leonard, the inmate that he cozied up to to find the hitman was actually an ATF informant. Oh, Lord. And so the ATF informant or or sheriff's department informant immediately wrote to his handler in the sheriff's department and said, dude, I got a case for you. And uh, that particular individual was on vacation, so another deputy took command and got with the ATF and got the UC and uh, talked to the in-jail informant and got him to hook up Mark Leonard with the uh, ATF undercover, and the murder-for-hire plot was born. They were able to tie Mark Leonard to it with, uh, you know, like unbreakable rope because the guy, the, the inmate wrote something and then had Mark Leonard write, I promise to pay you $15,000 and sign it, Mark Leonard. And then had Mark Leonard draw a map to find Mark Duckworth. And then during the call, the UC confirmed that Mark Leonard drew the map and Mark Leonard signed the document. And Mark Leonard went into more detail about where Mark Duckworth lived. Now, hold up. Hold up, please. Promise to pay an extra 5000 bucks. If you're sitting here negotiating something, and they're like, hey, I need you to draw me a map, and then I need you to put your signature on it, aren't, like, I'm just saying, isn't it like alarm bells going to be going off in dude's head going, hmm, I'm going to be for for some people, but not other people, and and people like Mark Leonard don't. Again, they don't tend to think. They're so used to conning people that they can't recognize when they're getting conned. Right. I mean, you know, Mark Leonard. Mark Leonard would not last one date with me. Because one of the things he did with Monserrati Shirley is he told her, I want to buy you a BMW. Let's sell your SUV, and I'll buy you a BMW. They sold her SUV. He bought a motorcycle and a Cadillac, and then she ended up with a $750 2004 Taurus. Oh, Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, if, if a man like Mark Leonard said, I want to buy you a BMW, sell your car so we can buy you a BMW, I'd be like, no, 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 no. You want to buy me a BMW, you go to the dealership and you buy me the damn BMW. Right. If I sell my car, then I'm buying myself a BMW. But actually, if I sell my car, I'm buying myself another Honda. So, 
take your BMW, you know, and if he gave me some sob story about he's got to finish this job, he's going to get paid in two weeks, but people came in and stole his equipment. I, you know, can I borrow $10,000 for equipment? Be like, um, no, I'm really sorry, but you know, don't you have insurance for that? Right. I'm really sorry that happened to you, but I'm not giving you $10,000 for a piece of equipment. You know, he wouldn't he wouldn't last a date with me. Yeah, you'd call him on his BS. I'd, I'd, I'd ooh, holy yeah, holy God, I would so call him on his BS. But unfortunately, well, I mean, you know, Monserrati didn't see through it. Because see, with me, if he'd gotten me with the whole BMW thing, and he got the Cadillac and the motorcycle, and I had the seven hundred fifty dollars piece of crap car. His ass would have been out the door, on the curb, and I probably would have used a baseball bat to get whatever money I felt he owed me out of his hide. What? (laughs) You know? Or the Cadillac and the motorcycle would have been in my name, and then he'd be on the curb, and I'd be selling those things to buy myself another Honda. So, but again, you know, like I said, he, he was so used to conning people. He, he could not recognize when he was getting conned and that happens. Look at Dahlia DiPolito, mm-hmm. you know, same, same exact thing. She could not recognize when she was being conned. True. True. So, um, so Mark Leonard ended up with additional charges on top of the, 50-some-odd counts of arson, multiple counts of insurance fraud, um, and two murder counts. Mm-hmm. They charged him with felony murder as well as knowing murder, which is first-degree murder, um, for the deaths of Jennifer and Dion Longworth. Okay. So he added – he tacked on some more charges. <laughs> yeah, you know, no big deal, just first-degree murder. Yeah. Um, so the defendants all requested separate trials, and their requests for separate trials were granted, um, probably because there were so many statements by Shirley, Leonard, or Bob that um, it was better to try them separately because the statements were going to be used And the risk of a jury not disregarding statements of Shirley that didn't have anything to do with Bob or Mark was too great. So they were all granted separate trials. Yes. I was going to say, I have to ask, because, you know, in West Memphis 3, that was a big idea, or a big deal, and so on and so forth. What is the deal with separate trials? Like, does it... Does the defense feel like that benefits them in every case, or how does that work? <clears throat> well, in in Eccles and Baldwin, they, they weren't granted separate trials because the grounds that the defense cited in an effort to try to get separate trials were not sufficient. Um, neither Baldwin or Eccles had made a recorded confession like Miss Kelly. 
They did have a statement of Eccles, the softball girl statement, which was an admission of guilt. And they did have a statement from Baldwin to Michael Carson, which was an admission of guilt. But those were isolated. And it was a single witness, single statement situation. Mm-hmm. One of the other things is that I think that Mark Leonard, Monserrati Shirley, and Bob Leonard all said that they were going to be pointing fingers at each other. You know, Shirley was claiming it was all Mark's fault and Bob's fault. Bob was going to claim it was all Shirley and Mark. Mark was going to claim it was all Shirley. And so, um, you know, that he was just trying to make her happy. And so that would be another grounds for granting separate trials if they're going to be pointing fingers at each other. And that's another thing. Eccles and Baldwin weren't going to point fingers at each other. Right. So, um, and then they also requested changes of of venue, which were granted. Um, Mark's trial was moved to, (sighs) I can't remember the county name. And um, Bob's trial was moved. Let's see, Mark's was moved. I don't have the counties. Anyway, um, yeah, Mark's, Mark and Bob's trials were both moved. Monserrati Shirley, uh, the state was not seeking the death penalty. Because they didn't feel that a jury would find – that it might present problems with the jury finding for the death or finding them guilty when this was a consequence of the explosion but was not something that they really intended. They didn't, they didn't intend to kill anybody. Right. It was a foreseeable consequence of what they were of their deliberate actions, but it wasn't done with the intent to kill anybody. So they decided they elected not to seek the death penalty, but they were seeking life in prison plus mm-hmm. years, decades on each of the arson counts. Right. And. Oh, Exactly. And so Monserrati Shirley, in thinking about that and the prospect of never seeing her daughter in the free world again, Monserrati Shirley elected to enter a guilty plea. Mm-hmm. And in a case like this, while they could have gotten convictions against each and every one of them, Having someone who was on the inside putting all the pieces together was something that was extremely helpful. Mm-hmm. And so Monserrati Shirley entered a plea agreement and gave a more detailed statement of uh, what happened, when it happened, how it happened, and who was involved, which led to the arrests of Gary Thompson 
and Glenn Holtz. Gary Thompson was involved in the initial attempt to blow up the house. And Glenn Holtz was an accessory. He knew what was going down, and he didn't tell anybody. He didn't report it. And then after it happened, he didn't report it. Right. So uh, they were arrested. Uh, Mark Leonard went to trial first, and the the prosecution's case, in addition to all the circumstantial evidence, they had Montserrat Shirley's inside testimony of, you know, how things came about. It's interesting, though, one of the things that the uh, investigation uncovered was in January of 2011 – which is like 10 months before she claimed to have first met Mark Leonard. There was a check to Mark Leonard on a company account for the company that he owned with M. Shirley's signature on it. Really? Yeah. And it's entirely probable that they tried to... uh, tie the explosion and the trip to the casino to an, quote, anniversary. But they met and been together longer than they had. Um, The defense case, basically that, um, you know, Shirley was the one who had the most to gain and Mark was just trying to keep her happy and his conduct was reckless, but it was not knowing murder, and so he shouldn't be convicted of murder. Right. Um, he had his trial lasted about six weeks. This is a huge case. I mean, every neighbor testified, every firefighter rescuer testified. They had hundreds of witnesses who were just fact witnesses to the events of November 9th and 10th. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they had the scientific and, and structural and um, uh, explosive testimony. And, of course, the DNA from Bob Leonard on the door. Um, after about four hours, the jury came back with a verdict convicting Mark Leonard of 50-plus arson counts. Uh Multiple insurance fraud counts and two murder counts, knowing murder counts. The sentencing began shortly thereafter. Mark Leonard elected to waive a jury in the sentencing phase and be have the sentencing decided by the judge. And um, he ended up being sentenced to life in prison plus I think it was consecutive 50 years on the arson counts or 75 years on the arson counts. But life, two consecutive life sentences for the knowing murders. Um, Bob Leonard went to trial after Mark. Uh, Again, prosecution case pretty much the same 
with Shirley's testimony and Bob's part. And uh, the defense case was that Bob didn't do it. The verdict, again, it was a long trial, but the verdict came pretty quickly. He was guilty on all 50-plus counts of arson, uh, multiple counts of insurance fraud, and knowing murder, two counts of knowing murder. He, too, waived a jury for sentencing, and he was sentenced to life on the knowing murders, consecutive with... 70 years, I think it was, on the arson and insurance fraud. So Mark and Bob are not going to get out of prison. Yeah. Because uh, I think it's life without parole anyway, but even if by some, you know, legislation in the future, they become eligible for consideration after a certain term of years on a life sentence, they still have to serve. Once they finish that, they have to start serving whatever term of years they have to serve on those 50-year sentences. Right. I think we've talked about that before. And then Mark Leonard also went to trial on the murder-for-hire case. And, you know, basically the prosecution had the letter, the... You see uh, Mark Duckworth and recordings and phone calls, and they had him dead to rights. Most of the defense case was challenging the admissibility of that evidence. And um, the judge ruled against them and all those things and he was convicted of murder for hire and received an additional sentence I don't recall what it was but it was even it was consecutive with the prior sentences I think for the arsons and the murders so he's again really really not going to get out of jail right or prison um and then um, the plea deal with, with Monserrati Shirley upset a lot of the survivors because they were afraid that she made this plea deal. They were reducing counts, and that means she would serve you know, no time in jail, no time in prison, or serve only a few years and then be back in the world again. Um, but in her sentencing, she was sentenced to 20 to 50 years. So she would not be eligible for release until sometime in the 2030s. Right. So um, they did reduce. She was convicted of a Class A felony count of arson and a Class B felony count of arson. And they dismissed Uh all the murder and arson and insurance fraud counts. Um, And then Gary Thompson, seeing the way the wind was blowing, he elected to enter a plea. He pled guilty to his part in the 
overall scheme as well as the initial attempt. And he was sentenced to 30 years with 10 suspended. So he'll be out in the 2020s. Or he'll be eligible for release in the 2020s. Uh, Glenn Uh Holtz had been charged as an accessory and he entered a plea and was sentenced and he actually ended up being released last September of 2017. He didn't serve very much time in jail. At all. So, um, on the direct appeals, Mark Leonard challenged the admission of um, some out-of-court statements made by Leonard, which dealt with the arson, uh, the sufficiency of the evidence to support the murder convictions, the uh, proof of the aggravate one of the alleged aggravators on uh the sentencing and he challenged the constitutionality of Indiana's life without parole statute <clears throat> on the uh sufficiency of the evidence uh the appellate court found that the evidence was more than sufficient on each and every count uh and they explained even though he didn't intend to kill Dion and Jennifer Longworth, there that they that somebody could die in an explosion of that magnitude is not an unforeseeable consequence. Yeah. I think the fact that they took Snowball to a border and the daughter to uh, halts, and they went to a casino and they were not present in the neighborhood when all this went down, kind of suggests that they knew somebody could get hurt or killed. Right. So, um, that was, you know, that was, the evidence was sufficient that, you know, both Dion and Jennifer died as a result of the explosion that they deliberately caused to happen. And that's the thing. You know, that's the the key. You deliberately took these actions. This event occurred. And as a result of this event that you set in motion, people died. You're as responsible for their deaths as though you had done it with your own hands. Right. So, um, you know, I mean, the evidence showed he was planning for Shirley's house to be entirely destroyed. And that he didn't foresee the result is on him. So, uh, um, he Leonard uh, also challenged the, some of the statements made in connection with the murder for hire, were admitted. um, Dealing with the murder for hire uh, charge. And he challenged the admission of those statements because he had had invoked 
And so he felt that because he had invoked, they couldn't use any statements without an attorney present. They couldn't talk to him without an attorney present. And basically what the Indiana Supreme Court held was that uh, in criminal prosecutions, you invoke for the crime that you're charged for. That doesn't count. Future crimes doesn't count. Right. Um, and the murder for hire was a totally separate case. And the statements that he made were during the course of investigation of the murder for hire. So um, that was basically you can't you can't invoke and then commit another crime and expect the government to just sit there and say oh well he's invoked so um and you know he wasn't being prosecuted for the murder for hire at the time he made the statements <clears throat> So, and then the the uh, proof of the aggravator, uh, basically Dion Long, the ag one of the aggravators was that you've already killed one person and you killed another person, and then one of the other aggravators was that you caused someone to be burned, inflicting great pain on them, and. Um, that's what happened with Dion. He was burned. His cause of death was thermal injury, not blast injury. And then they also they they didn't they dismissed his they didn't uh the Indiana Supreme Court ruled on life without parole and they did not see fit to reverse their prior rulings. And then Bob Leonard's appeal, so his conviction and sentence were affirmed. Right. And um, he would move on to state post-conviction, but we'll get into why that's not going to happen a little bit later. (laughs) And then Bob Leonard, he also challenged... Uh, the sufficiency of the evidence supporting the murder convictions, the sufficiency of the evidence as to one of the statutory aggravators, whether um, the trial court abuses discretion in refusing to give a lesser included offense instruction to the jury, and also challenging the life without parole. <clears throat> and basically for the same reasons for with Mark, uh, they found the uh, murder conviction evidence was sufficient. While they may not have specifically intended that John, uh, Leon and Dion and uh, Jennifer Longworth die that night, they died. And they died as a result of the detonation of an explosive with the intent to injure a person or damage property. And then also, like the murder, the death of Jennifer, which was immediate, uh, 
followed by the death of Dion, which was later, is an aggravator. <clears throat> and the fact that, that uh, Dion was burned. Uh, again, same thing. They they uh, they the only difference with Marx was that in discussing the uh, lesser included offense, basically because Bob wasn't admitting to being involved in the arson plot, he could not seek a lesser included offense that their death that the deaths were the result of reckless conduct. Which is what he wanted to do, and um, <clears throat> you know that that's a lesser included offense that Mark could have given. I don't think that the jury would have bought it, but um, they they found that his uh, he wasn't entitled to the lesser included. And then finally, uh, the conviction Mark's conviction on the murder for hire was also affirmed. So Bob was affirmed, conviction and sentence. Uh, they are now final, and he will move on probably to state post-conviction. Um, they both, let's see, I didn't check the Supreme Court website. I don't know if they filed writs with the U.S. Supreme Court. If they did, they probably were not granted because <laughs> it's been over two years, or almost two years, since their uh, direct appeals were decided. Um, so Mark, yeah, Mark Leonard challenged the admission of all the evidence of the murder for hire plot, and the court basically found that all the evidence was properly admitted. So that conviction and sentence were also in front. Also affirmed. <clears throat> so uh, the Richmond Hill neighborhood is still recovering. Some neighbors uh, were able to rebuild. Some immediately. Others had to fight with their insurance companies, whose adjusters came in and found other ca causes of the damage to their homes and denied coverage, uh -huh. which some of the homeowners whose homes were damaged by an explosion from which criminal charges arose, uh, but they had to go out and find structural engineers to push and fight for coverage to uh, be paid for their houses, which is really ridiculous. Oh, absolutely, but you know insurance um, people. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I would think it it's – I mean, you, you look at the photos and the news photos, and these weren't people who, you know, were miles away and said, oh, this damaged my house. I mean, these were people in the neighborhood, not just field fair way, but – the street behind field fair and the cross streets houses were literally pushed off their foundations. There was one house that was sideways Dang. on the foundation. 
So um, they're still rebuilding and recovering. And a lot of the neighbors have gone back. And, you know, basically they're just trying to move forward. But this is something that's, you know, impacted and scarred them for the rest of their lives. Uh, There are a couple of documentaries on YouTube, which I would recommend that you watch uh, to get an idea of not only what they went through, but but how they're recovering. Uh, One of the neighbors went through her own battle with breast cancer. Um, She is, she caught it early, got treatment, and has been cancer-free for some time. And so she's not only survived what seemed like the end of the world on November 10th, 2012, but she's also survived breast cancer. And then uh, in January of 2018, Mark Leonard died in prison hospital from a blood disorder. He had had some prior health issues, um, but yeah, he he passed away January 30th, I think it was, 2018. So there will be no state post-conviction for Mark Leonard. Right. His conviction and sentence are final, and he is now deceased. Glenn Olvey... What's the mm-hmm. chances of his, you know, attorneys continuing maybe to clear his name? Is that like out no. of the No. Uh, no, that would be extraordinary if they even tried it. Um, and it would be extraordinary if any court actually accepted it. In fact, I mean, I've I've researched cases in Texas where somebody had, you know, a conviction and a sentence of five years, and then 15 years later, they file a post-conviction motion to try and challenge the conviction and sentence, and it's like, you're done. The time to right. do that is long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they may have been trying to get the record expunged and just not following the proper procedure, Right. Or not willing to wait whatever term. Because most states, to get a conviction expunged, you cannot do that until you have been, let's see, until at least 10 years after you've completed whatever, whatever sentence and probation terms. And you have to, you know, the the DA has to agree to permit the conviction to be expunged. But, um, no, I I, I don't think that they – I don't think that anybody will try because his, his defense at trial was I was stupid and it was bigger than I thought it would be. You know, basically. Oh my God! I poured too too much gasoline on the fire. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, basically. And the jury just didn't buy that. The jury believed, you know, the jury believed that he wanted it to be as big as he did. Mm-hmm. Mostly because of the statements that he made that the fire station's only two miles away, so it's got to be big so they don't come put it out before it destroys the house. Right. So, and then Glenn Olvey, the the neighbor next to, on the other side of Montserrat and Shirley's house, uh, he passed away later uh, in November of 2018 from lung cancer. And uh, he survived by a son and his two daughters who were home with him and his ex-wife on the night of the November 10th, 2012. And then Dale Bear, another neighbor, uh, he passed away earlier this year. Mm-hmm. So... Um, and that's pretty much that's a wrap on the, you know, Gary Thompson, Glenn Holtz, and Montserrat Shirley likely will not be filing any kind of appeals. Mm-hmm. They will have waived those rights as part of their plea agreements. Um, not right. to say that they might not try it, <clears throat> but. Um, I think this is one of those cases that are just too cut and dried mm-hmm. to, you know, for anybody to seriously question their culpability. And it was all greed. Mm-hmm. You know, that was, it was all because of greed. Absolutely. So, well, I think that's that's it for tonight. I think mm-hmm. I've said all I can possibly say. Yes, ma'am. Well, let's put a bow on her. And... About that case. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, that is one of the sadder cases because um, Dion Longworth and. Jennifer Longworth were young. They were uh, hadn't been married too long, hadn't had a chance to have kids. He was an engineer, I think an, a sound engineer, and she was mm-hmm. a teacher. Her school still, you know, they've dedicated a bench or a garden for her, and um, they've got a scholarship in their names and. But it's sad because they were just at home on Saturday night getting ready uh-huh. to climb into bed and watch Netflix and chill or watch a movie. And in a second, it was all gone. Uh-huh. And they lost their lives. So. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing. I mean, can you imagine just not only being that young, but like just going about your normal day and then all of a sudden through no fault of your own, an explosion mm-hmm. happens because somebody was that greedy, you know, the title of the show that it was on American Greed is pretty apropos in this situation. Right, right. 
Yeah, because the widespread damage in the neighborhood was, I mean, just sickening. Absolutely. Um, so, but that is uh, that is the end of it. Okay. I mean. And next like next week we start Edward what? Wayne Edwards. I know. Well, you know, I'm I, I'm warning you now. I will be spending a lot of time debunking John Cameron's book. Right. Now, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you right now. I'm going to probably play a little bit of devil's advocate, even though me and you, in the full interest of full disclosure, me and you have talked, and you know, I sit here and roll my eyes at a lot of this shit. You know, we got to play a little bit of devil's advocate to keep it interesting, but, you know, I mean, for those of you who have been listening for a while, y'all know that I've been looking forward to just hearing Lisa rip this shit to shreds, and I absolutely cannot (laughs) wait until we get to the West Memphis portion of this. Right. Well, I I think, uh, I, I don't know about ripping anything to shreds. I think what I'm going to do is just a general, you know, I could, I could spoiler alert. I can tell you one of my problems is that he has, he makes a lot of conclusory allegations based on his interpretation of things. Many of which are so far off the mark, it's not even funny. I remember like he claims, and he said that mm-hmm. he talked to Ed, and he would ask Ed, for example, Ed, did you kill them three boys in West Memphis? And Ed would say something like, "I don't know," or you know, that that's for you to decide, or I want you to figure it out, or some shit, something, you know. Kind of well, crazy line. I feel like a lot of it he dug into because Ed wanted him to dig into it. Right, but you know, for me, one of my problems is he talks about some phone calls and he talks about receiving some letters mm-hmm. from Edwards. However, he and his little buddy Neil, who I still to this day wonder if he really exists. The code breaker were supposed to go to Ohio and see Edwards in prison. Mm-hmm. And they were planning their little trip and they got the phone call that Edwards was dead. Right. So they never had a face to face meeting. See, Additionally, if Edwards if Edwards was a con man at heart Mhm. He's gonna say, "You, what do you think? You figure it out. Why don't you look into that?" That's, That's how he's he gonna keep the con going with Cameron. That's how he put it to us. Is that's pretty much what Ed would say? Is what do you think? I don't know, or something you know, kind of similar. To that's that. that's also called hearsay because it's right. his. Statement of what he what Edwards told him. If he has a letter from Edwards, which is still hearsay, but uh, if he has a letter from Edwards that corroborates that, 
Because if he says Edwards told him and it's in a letter, that kind of corroborates it. Um, well, but no, he, I mean, he, there's one. He claims one chapter of Edwards's book, Metamorphosis of, of a Criminal, talks about the murder of um, Marilyn Shepard in Ohio mm-hmm. in the 50s. Okay, mm-hmm. the woman in the book has a daughter. Marilyn Shepard had a son. The woman in the book, as far as I could tell, because they're both crappy writers, <laughs> was not pregnant. Marilyn Shepard was pregnant. So you did find a copy of Ed Edwards' book, because he told me it wasn't in circulation anymore, so I didn't... He has I a link on his website. He has I'm a link on his website. I downloaded it. I downloaded it on... Um, I think I downloaded it on a thumb drive, and I downloaded it on my, my old Kindle. Okay. Okay, yeah, I'm going to have to read that. Because, I mean, there's parts of what the gentleman said, James Cameron said that uh, – or John Cameron, excuse me. James Cameron's the director. There's parts <laughs> of what John Cameron said that makes sense. Because, you know, I do believe that Edwards was a cognate. I do, you know, obviously there's video yeah. evidence that the crazy some bitch got on uh, that game show. You know, there's stuff that is there that's like, holy crap, if you just stuck with the truth or what you could prove, then yes, he lived an extraordinary life and the guy's a some bitch and, you know, he got what he deserved. Right. But, I mean, when you start reaching out to he killed Black Dahlia and he's responsible for Jobinet and the Atlanta child kidnappings, yeah. all that shit. You're just yeah. like, come on, dude. Dude had to have been 80. He had to be the most physically fit 80-year-old man. <laughs> Correct. Correct. So, but we'll we'll get into that. I mean, I think what I'm going to do is, I think go through what we know about some <laughs> of these some of these cases. Uh, for example, Suzanne Degnan. That's Robert Heinlein. Robert Heinlein, until the day he died, challenged his convictions and sentences. Right. So we've got court opinions, and the court opinions talk about the facts. And that's one of the things really about his book and his theories that insult me the most is that you can tell – he did not even do basic, basic research. I was about to say, you know, part of this makes me wonder, you know, did he? You know, I think he at one point said Edwards killed Lacey. I, I mean, yeah. come on now. Edwards killed Lacey and framed Scott. I don't even know. Yeah. I didn't read the book that he wrote. In full disclosure, I didn't read the book he wrote, and I'm going to try to this week. But, I mean, <laughs> the, only thing, the only thing that could possibly have given Edwards the possibility of killing Lacey was I remember watching a documentary not too long ago that there was a possibility that there was a robbery or something. Right. I, I, I mean, come on now. Some of this, yes, does sound just completely far-fetched, and it's going to be hard for me to play devil's advocate on it. But, I mean, shit. Come on, dude. Give me yeah. something to work with. Right. And, you know, that's another, that's another problem is he claims 
Edwards was Zodiac. Edwards killed Black Dahlia. Um, crimes of recognition, which are unsolved, mm-hmm. and that he, but then other crimes where someone else was tried and convicted, well, then Edwards framed that person. And it's, well, and- again, it's all conclusory allegations. It's not you know, anything, you know, it, there's nothing, no evidentiary basis. Well, and, you know, the way he connected Edwards to West Memphis 3, I remember, he said the West Memphis 3 were killed in Robin Hood Hills, and he killed somebody when he was younger in and I forget what neighborhood, but it was basically, it sounded like Robin Hood Hills, so that makes sense that he did it. Huh? Yeah. That, and that's, yeah. And you're saying you're going to read it this weekend or this week? I started reading that book probably in March or April. I'm still trying to finish it. Well, and I'm going to I'm gonna Because go the writing it. is so bad. And the conclusory mm-hmm. allegations are so infuriating, and even cases I'm not familiar with, the facts are so skewed that I can only read it for a few minutes, and then I have to stop, well, or I'm going to throw know, something. I don't know if you've gone back. And I blame you for this. I don't know if you've gone back in the archives and listened to. Yeah, I did. You, I did. Yeah. I mean, and I'm going to try to go back and listen to that as well. I mean, the stuff that he says, it's just like me and Brad were, you know, in the moment we were like, holy crap, this is pretty cool. But then when you go back and you actually think about it, you're like, come on, bro. I realize you're a detective and I realize you want to get famous for this shit, but come on now, bro. Yeah. I mean, this guy has yeah. literally been the most prolific serial killer in the history of the country to be able to pull some of this shit off. Correct. So, well, we'll 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 get into this next week. Yes. <laughs> I hear so, the excitement. I, I I still I blame you because I have now got to finish that book. Because the time uh-huh. is upon me, and I I blame you every single <laughs> time. <laughs> every time you pick it up, you think of me. Yes, I do. <laughs> All right. I'm going to go ahead and do the outro so we can close this puppy out. Sounds good. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincing.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'BrienLN. Join us on Tuesday, August 6, 2019 at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 23, Edward Wayne Edwards, Part 1. Edward's story is a big one, and most of it has been told by a retired detective from Montana who believes he's linked Edwards to murders, some of which remain unsolved to this day. For those that were solved, 
the allegation is that Edwards framed the person or persons who were convicted of the crime. We'll look at several of the cases in three parts covering three decades of Edwards' life. In the first part, we'll talk about Edwards' birth in 1933, his early life, and the allegation that Edwards began killing during his preteen or early teen years in the 1940s. We'll talk about the murders of Suzanne Dagnan in Chicago, Elizabeth Short, who became known as the Black Dahlia in Los Angeles, and Marilyn Shepard in Ohio. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.